Welcome to your daily affirmations. Repeat after me, working with others is easier than ever. I strive for perfect collaboration. Our teamwork keeps getting better. Yeah, affirmations are great, but Monday.com can really get you the teamwork you desire. Work together easily and share files, updates, data, and just about anything you want all in one platform. Affirm yes to start. Or tap the banner to go to Monday.com. With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. And I'd like to tell you that we have a new and improved website. It has two new features that we think you'll love. One of them is a vastly improved search engine so that when you type in keywords, you'll get a bunch of episodes really quick. The other is the ability to create a listener account. And in that listener account, you can save episodes for later listening. So you can create a kind of listening list. We think these features are neat and we think you'll enjoy them. Please visit the site today. Welcome to the New Books Network. So welcome back to the New Books and Anthropology podcast on the New Books Network. I'm your host, Reagan Gillum. And today I'm speaking with Professor Catherine Mariner about her book, Contingent Kinship, The Flows and Futures of Adoption in the United States from the University of California Press. Welcome to the podcast, Dr. Mariner. Thanks for having me. Yeah, thank you for being here. Um, so, so the first question um, is um, a focus on how you came to write this book. So the book focuses on the processes of making families and kinship um, through adoption in the United States, which we'll get into. Um, but the first question is just what interested you in, in this topic and um, you know what was the what, what brought you to write this book? Yeah, so there are a lot of things. I think any anybody would say that that go into to how you get to a topic that you write about. Um, but most obviously, and I talk about this a bit in the book, um, is that I'm a transracial adoptee. Um, so I'm mixed race. I identify as black. I was adopted as an infant in rural Oregon in the 1980s um, by a white couple. Uh, the story is that I actually went into my PhD program as a linguistic anthropologist um, interested in indigenous languages uh, in central Mexico. Uh, but in my first year in the program, I realized that my heart just wasn't quite there. Um, and my passion was really in exploring the politics of race and intimacy in the United States, which is something that I thought about a little bit as an undergrad, um, but I'd really sort of gone down the Latin American studies uh, path when I was in college. So there was so much um, about my own experience um, with race, with kinship that felt at odds um, with what I read about and what I heard from other people. Um, And I realized I actually knew very, very little about how adoption worked. Um, I knew, you know, kind of the details of my own, uh, but I didn't really know sort of structurally or culturally how the process of adoption worked. Um, And so Chicago turned out to be a really ideal place to witness how domestic transracial adoption worked uh, in a super segregated city. So um, 
I, I guess I could have done my field work anywhere in the U.S., but it, it would have looked different sort of depending on the demographics of the place that I was doing the field work in. Um, and so I think like the particular angle that I take in the book, thinking through affect and temporality and speculation is definitely um, a product of my graduate training at the University of Chicago uh, and definitely sort of the influence of my dissertation committee, which was co-chaired by Joe Masco and John Komaroff, um, but that also included Summerson Carr and Julie Chu. Um, so that's sort of the path from basically when I was born uh, to when I went to graduate school um, and sort of how this book came to be. Yeah, thank you. Um, and so you mentioned that your fieldwork took place in Chicago um, and, and it took place at the First Steps Adoption Agency and as well as at other adoption conferences and events that you attended. Um, so I wanted to um, get into the book, I guess, by, by first talking about your primary research site and asking you to describe the agency. Um, you take this particular focus um, on social workers mm-hmm. and your role in working with them at the agency. Yeah, for sure. So I should mention that First Steps is a pseudonym, so there is no actual First Steps. Um, but the agency that First Steps is based upon, um, the, in all honesty, the way that I found my way to that agency um, is sort of because they wanted me or could accommodate me <laughs> when nobody else could, um, which I'm realizing now as I say that it's kind of a bizarre sort of adoption story in itself. Um, so once I realized that I, I wanted to write my dissertation on adoption and I was in Chicago, uh, I reached out to a number of adoption agencies to see if I could volunteer or intern. This is in my first year in the PhD program. I just wanted to spend my summer doing some sort of exploratory field work. This is the summer of 2009. Um, and so most of the, and there are a lot of adoption agencies in Chicago, but most of them never responded, um, Some said no for whatever reason. Uh, They just weren't in a position to take on an intern or a volunteer. Um, But First Steps um, basically welcomed me with open arms. Uh, And I I spent that first summer with them, and then I worked with them for several years um, through 2014. And then I went back and did some follow-up in 2016. Um, And at various points in the project, I, I tried to get access to other agencies so that I could provide sort of a... I guess, a less like single institutionally focused account, um, but I was never able to. Like, there were just always various reasons that I was given that um, they didn't really want a researcher around or they couldn't accommodate a researcher. Um, and so I, yeah, I definitely addressed some of these access challenges in the book too. Yeah, and um, <clears throat> in calling the book um, Contingent Kinship, um, you think you refer to the uncertainty in the adoption process. So when you were working with this um, first steps adoption agency, um, you seem to be, you know, working closely with the social workers um, as they go from um, expectant mothers to working with um, families who would like to adopt. Um, and you find that, you know, f- that the family adopting a baby is not always, you know, the end product that, you know, we may assume mm-hmm. uh, with the adoption process. Um, and so you examine these various sites of uncertainty throughout the adoption process, um, like uh, expectant mothers, uh, prospective parents, money and temporality, which you mentioned um, earlier. Um, so can you just tell us a little bit about that, maybe an example of how, how you see this uncertainty unfolding in the adoption process? Yes, um, absolutely. I mean, I also, I'm also realizing that I 
did not perhaps answer the question more about social workers, which is related to this. So I'll, I'll speak a little bit about that. Um, so the focus, the focus on social workers came out of a couple different um, places or influences. One is that a lot of the literature that I was reading about adoption was very focused on adoptive families and adoptive parents, um, or perhaps the narratives of adoptees, but less so. There was really not very much um, kind of elucidating the back end of the process um, or all of the labor that goes into creating these adoptive families. Um, and so that's one of the reasons that I chose to focus on the work of the social workers. Um, and another that I think is related to this is in adoption literature, not just in anthropology and related social sciences, but in like psychology, social work, um, public health, those kinds of fields, um, there's a, a construct known as the adoption triad. Um, and the adoption triad is basically this tripartite relationship between the adoptive family, the birth family, and the child or the adoptee. Um, and what I could see from my point of view at the adoption agency is that the social worker was actually like a hugely influential actor in the, the outcome of the adoption process, but was not accounted for at all in this, this notion of the adoption triad. Um, and so part of the intervention that I'm trying to make in the book is to say that in this particular kind of adoption, private agency adoption, it should really be more like a quad where you add the, the social worker or a reconfigured triad where you're thinking about um, a pregnant expectant mother um, a prospective adoptive family and the social worker that's sort of facilitating the exchange. Um, but to go back to this question about uncertainty, um, which the social workers are really sort of the, the expert brokers of uncertainty. Um, and I didn't go, I didn't go into the agency planning to write about uncertainty in particular or futures or, or really anything like this. Um, it wasn't even on my radar when I started. I had no idea actually that quite how fragile um, these exchanges are. I actually thought that I'd spend more time with adopted children and their families um, and write about the racial dynamics of these families. But the first summer um, that I was at the agency, I realized that the social workers were really like the central brokers of these exchanges and that there was so much at stake and so much that could go wrong. Um, and I spent a lot of my time in the field actually just documenting like failed adoptions. And that was something I was not really prepared for at all. I think sometimes from the outside, it can look like an adoption just happens and an adoptive family is this logical outcome of the process. Um, but after I spent a while at first steps, I found that more often than not, the adoption process would fail. Um, often because an identified expectant mother um, would be matched with a prospective adoptive family, but then in the end would decide to parent her child. Um, and this, again, it didn't really seem like something that other people were writing about or talking much about. Um, and when I looked closer, I could really see sort of how contingent this whole process was. Um, and through my fieldwork, I came to draw connections between this fragility and the structural conditions of possibility of adoption, which include these larger forces of social inequality, economic abandonment, um, in Chicago, in particular, segregation, racism, um, the sort of historical and contemporary devaluation of Black motherhood, um, et cetera, et cetera. Mm -hmm. And so um, that's really important to, to think about, too, I guess, when when we're thinking about how we come to the, the topics that we tend to, that we focus on in the book, because um, the book appears to be this, um, you know, finished product. And 
we also don't get to hear about the processes that brought us to, um, you know, to these, to these terms and concepts that we then, you know, put forward. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's really uh, important to hear about. Um, and, and it seems like in the book, um, amidst this uncertainty that you talk about um, unfolding, um, the social, social workers are tasked with um, managing it. And um, it seemed like they were sort of constantly even, and most, they're, they're constantly wondering whether the person is going to give up the child, um, whether the, the expectant mother is actually expecting. Um, these were some of the surprises that, that, that occurred to me um, as I was reading it. Um, and so I was wondering if you could talk about, you know, just some of these issues and strategies that they use to manage this uncertainty. Yeah. Yeah. So, so much, I mean, so much of the book is about social workers practices for managing uncertainty and managing in particular risk or what they perceive as different kinds of risk and different levels of risk. Um, So within the context of adoption, this, this uncertainty or this risk um, and ways for managing it might include monitoring, surveilling, or otherwise sort of keeping track of potential birth parents. Um, It might include mitigating the emotional investment lost and financial investment lost um, in the case of a failed adoption by waiting until later in a pregnancy to match an expectant mother with prospective adopters. Um, I found that this sort of like temporal milestones of the unfolding of the process, right, like the birth mother or the prospective birth mother approaches the agency um, and there's a sort of twin process by which the prospective adopters approach the agency. And at some point, these two are matched together. Um, and at that moment, the investment is sort of crystallized um, and the stakes become a lot higher, right? Because if a, if a prospective adoptive mother at that point decides that she wants to parent her child, there's this sort of already agreed adoption that's in process that has to fall through. A fall through is the, the word that the social workers use for it. Um, so there's there's a lot of risk management, just like constant risk management. Um, and an adoption can take anywhere from, you know, one year, several months to a year in a, in a really quick um, example um, to more than two years, at least when I, the time that I was in the field, that was sort of the timeline, the expected timeline. Um, and so throughout that time, social workers are always assessing clients, both pregnant women and the people who are hoping to adopt, um, you know, like, what are like for the for the prospective birth mother? What are her needs? What is her background? Is she actually pregnant? Um, is a question that they ask. Will she change her mind? Um, is she trustworthy? Has she done this before? Uh, for prospective adopters, you know, are they hiding something? Will they be good parents? Are there extended families on board with this? Um, is their home a safe place to raise a child? There's this whole elaborate home study process that um, prospective adopters go through in order to be sort of certified as fit parents. Um, There's also a lot of paperwork. Very few actually binding agreements happen before the birth of the child, or if any, um, but many, many non-binding agreements, these sort of like good faith agreements um, that have a promissory quality to them. Um, And so, so much of the process then is really just trying to pin down this super unwieldy future. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it seemed very, um, very complex. And all of those um, uncertainties that you um, just talked about and strategies of managing it um, seem to uh, uh, be expressed, I guess, through your idea of speculative 
intimacy, um, which you refer to throughout the book. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I, I was interested in this term because it seems like like a contradictory term and that it, that it implies like you're trying to look into something that's private or you're trying to, you know, see into something that is closed off, mm-hmm. um, which then, you know, produces um, all of these complexities and tensions. Um, and so social workers engage in this, um, like you said, in order to produce this imagined child. Um, so can you just tell us um, more about this idea, um, how you see it working, um, and what you think it opens up or offers us analytically to, to think about um, either yeah. kind or more than more than that? Yeah, yeah, for sure. Um, all right. Yeah. So speculative intimacy, or I think intimate speculation, as I refer to it in the book, is this sort of three-part process that I observed at work in the adoption agency or through the adoption process. Um, so it's a, ki- it's a kind of set of practices. It builds on three definitions of speculation. So speculation is like super polysemous. It has many possible meanings. Um, but there's three that I sort of honed in on that are all kind of at work in the adoption process. So the first is speculation as sort of conjecture or speculation as thinking about the future. And this is a this is sort of speculation in an affective and temporal sense. Um, the second is speculation as a, a practice of seeing or observing. Right. So like the, the spec, the SPEC in speculation comes from the Latin speceri to see or to observe. Um, and it, there's a whole sort of genealogy of words that come from that original root that all have to do with seeing, spectacle, um, speculum, etc. Uh, and then there's also the third form of speculation is this notion of a risky form of investment like business speculation or ec- economic speculation. Um, so thinking about speculation in these three ways analytically, I think helped me capture these seemingly discrete parts of the adoption process and how they're imbricated. Um, so since the process is one of, you know, great risk and uncertainty, it entails a great deal of speculation about the future by all actors throughout. Um, so much of the process, as I mentioned before, is this kind of like future management, future imagination, um, worrying about the future. So anxiety and hope are really prominent affective orientations for actors during the adoption process. Um, adoption also involves various modes Um, of observation and surveillance, right, as a way to gain predictive knowledge about subjects and outcomes. So social workers are just sort of always observing, surveilling, um, watching clients um, to produce a particular kind of knowledge that gives them some insight into a future outcome. Um, And then finally, adoption itself is a kind of risky investment. So the stakes are very high. People risk great sums of money, um, spans of time, years sometimes, up to thousands of dollars, tens of thousands of dollars, um, and emotional investment, a great deal of emotional investment if we're thinking about sort of the preemptive creation of kinship relations, um, this huge emotional investment in a child as an imagined future. Um, So often the this sort of imagined kinship starts to be formed with this child that has not yet been born, much less sort of relinquished into the care of the the people who are trying to adopt. 
I don't know about you, but I'm very busy and I don't have a lot of time to cook. That's why I subscribe to Factor. Eating better is easy with Factor's delicious, ready-to-eat meals. Every fresh, never-frozen meal is chef-crafted, dietitian-approved, and ready to go in just two minutes. You'll have over 35 different options to choose from every week, including Calorie Smart, Protein Plus, and Keto. These are two-minute meals. Factor meals are ready to eat in heat, so there's no prepping, cooking, or cleanup needed. They're flexible for your schedule. Get as much or as little as you need by choosing your meals every week. Factor is the perfect solution if you're looking for fast, premium options with no cooking required. Sign up and save. We've done the math, and this is important. Factor is less expensive than takeout, and every meal is dietitian approved to be nutritious and delicious. Head to factormeals.com nbn50 and use code nbn50 to get 50% off. That's code nbn50 at factormeals.com slash nbn50 to get 50% off. The majority of the cases um, that you're looking at, and you and, and you mentioned this um, earlier, um, seem to be African-American expectant mothers um, potentially having their babies adopted by white couples. Um, and the agency seems to specialize in this very pattern of transracial adoption. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I was wondering if you could talk about the role of inequality and particularly um, racial inequality in the adoption process. Yeah, so um, first steps was explicitly focused on the placement of black and biracial children um, and infants. That was sort of part of their their mission statement. Um, and so the book itself, I at various points, I sort of extrapolate to adoption in the U.S. more generally, um, but it's really a story about the segregated post-industrial Midwest, specifically Chicago, sort of post-Great Migration, um, northern cities of the Midwest. Um, so in Chicago, First Steps was facilitating the movement of newborn Black babies from the south and west sides of Chicago um, to white families, usually residing in the suburbs and sometimes even out of state. The ways that race and class are entangled in the U.S. broadly Um, And in Chicago in particular, you know, as a result of um, histories of segregation, redlining, et cetera, uh, specifically with respect to a Black-white income and wealth gap, uh, meant that Black adoptees were moving from low-income families to wealthier white families. Um, And this was like, it was basically a unidirectional movement. Um, There weren't stories of, you know, white children in the suburbs being adopted by South side black families. Um, private adoption, which this is, um, I should, I probably should distinguish between the different types of adoption. So this is private, what I call private agency adoption. Um, there's another type of adoption that um, adoption professionals sometimes refer to as private private, which is you don't go through an agency with social workers, but you broker the exchange directly through a lawyer. Um, and so I didn't look at those kinds of adoptions. And then there's also public adoption, which is um, the foster care system. So private agency adoption in particular is very expensive. Um, it costs tens of thousands of dollars. Uh, it's just simply not accessible to low-income families because of how expensive it is. Um, and in Illinois, there's a mechanism called legally allowable birth parent expenses, which I spend a bit of time kind of theorizing in the book. And these, this category of expenses means that Prospective adopters were often paying for housing, food, clothing, um, other sorts of necessities for the women who were carrying what they hoped would be their babies. So this is like part of that um, speculative investment that I'm talking about. Um, 
And the nature of those legally allowable birth parent expenses meant that in the case of a fall through or a failed adoption, they could not be recouped. They were sort of in the category of a gift, um, so they could not be refunded or recovered by the parent or by the prospective adoptive parents who had paid them. And so this is all to say sort of the history of race relations and the treatment of black people in the U.S. has produced this particular kinship dynamic in which children are more likely to be relinquished or removed from families of color. Um, and so you see this sort of um, race and class based movement of children from these low income black neighborhoods to wealthier families in the suburbs. Mm-hmm. Um, and it also, it, it some, sometimes it seemed like as well, because of these unequal relations that sort of conditioned the um, process of, of that particular pattern of adoption, in a way, it seemed like you were also sometimes calling into question um, the very sort of existence of adoption itself, or like thinking about ways of imagining like a, a future that um, that was kind of more equitable, I guess. Mm-hmm. You would kind of hint to this in the book sometimes, it seemed like. Yeah, yeah. I mean, the book, I mean, the book is not sort of like staunchly anti-adoption or anything like that. But um, that, I think that what the book is trying to do is to get readers to think in a more structural way about the conditions of possibility for adoption. So often in the media, adoption is painted as this sort of rosy, positive, heartwarming situation um, because it's, it's, as a mechanism, it's very good at erasing its own conditions of possibility, which is, which is usually like poverty or violence. Um, and so what I say in the, in the conclusion of the book, I think is that, um, adoption is, a, an individual solution to a set of structural problems. Um, and so rather than sort of think about like, how can we make adoption better? Um, it would maybe be more effective to think about how can we um, m- create a world in which, you know, women can make decisions about their bodies and can care for children that they want, that they deeply want. Um, because often in my fieldwork, women who are relinquishing their parental rights, it wasn't because they didn't want the child. Um, it was because they didn't have the, the material means to care for the child. Mm-hmm. Um, and then I was surprised at the at the end of the book, or the, I guess the final chapter, um, where you talk about the closure of the agency. And I wasn't necessarily, I guess, surprised that it that it closed, um, but but also by some of the conclusions that you come to about the like or speculations about the possible future of adoption. Um, maybe, maybe it seems to be in decline. Um, and so I was wondering, um, like, where do you see, I guess, the future of adoption, or um, and, and what's contributing to the, to the decline in adoption. Yeah. So this was a, I mean, this was a puzzle (laughs) toward the end of the book for sure. Um, and I think, I'm not sure if I actually really figured it out or, and I don't think the social workers I was working with had totally figured it out either, but it was definitely, um, the cause of a lot of angst in the adoption agency. Um, so when I was finishing my fieldwork in 2016, uh, this sort of like perceived decline in domestic adoption um, was definitely, you know, a challenge and a conundrum for social workers. Um, It was something that they were sort of consistently lamenting. Um, It felt like every month there would be fewer women placing their children for adoption. 
Um, and so, like I said, like we weren't totally sure what was causing it. Um, but most people who work on or in adoption agree that it's this complicated combination of demographic factors. Um, there have been simply fewer unexpected pregnancies, uh, likely caused by access, wider access to reliable contraception, um, and also financial pressures from the 2008 recession. Um, we saw birth rates go down across the board, um, regardless of socioeconomic status. Um, so international adoption, I, in the book, I focus on domestic adoption, but international adoption has also decreased um, markedly as a result of various you know, geopolitical pressures since it peaked around, I think, 2006, 2007. Um, I, you know, I would, as far as the, the future of adoption, I guess I would be the first <laughs> to say that there's no predicting the future, um, you know, sort of look, look where we are now, I guess. Um, but in general, there does seem to be a trend towards smaller family sizes. I also think that there, um, are more public critiques of transracial adoption in particular, um, we've seen this uh, with the case of Amy Coney Barrett, who has two children from Haiti. Um, there's just there's more sort of critical thinking, I think, around the way that people are building their families, particularly when um, it's across racial lines. Uh, it's clearer to more Americans now, I think, um, what kind of damage is being done by continued structural racism. I think as a result of that, people might think more carefully about adoption uh, and about whether they have the resources to provide not only a rich and fulfilling upbringing for a child of color, um, but also like the real information and tools that child will need to survive as a black person in the United States. Um, so, I mean, this is all to say, like, I, I'm not entirely sure what the future holds for adoption, but I'm, I'm guessing that we're going to see some, some changes. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, that was, um, that was, that was fascinating. And I wasn't, I wasn't expecting it um, necessarily uh, to, to learn about that. And so that was a, a very interesting finding at the, at the end of the book. Um, and then I noticed um, that with your book, um, you wrote it as, and it, it's included as part of the Atelier Ethnographic Inquiry in the 21st Century um, and through the University of California Press. Um, and so I was wondering um, just about that, about that process um, of participating in the series. What was that like? Um, and, uh, you know, what, what was the experience, I guess, of participating in that um, series uh, for, for producing the book? Yeah. Um, so it was my first book. Um, it was, you know, yeah, my dissertation sort of turned book. So um, I don't have much to compare to, but I have nothing, you know, I have nothing but glowing things to say about Atelier. Um, so the premise of the series is um, it's basically uh, they choose a cohort of four to five or three to five um, book projects each year. So there's a there's one deadline a year and you submit Um and so Kevin Lewis O'Neill is the series editor and is really fantastic. Kate Marshall is the acquisitions editor at University of California um, Press and is like totally wonderful to work with. Um, the idea that uh, the projects were sort of handpicked and then I don't want to say like shepherded, but there's just the, this notion of a cohort of authors all sort of working together. Um, and focusing on developing creative and compelling ethnographic writing um, is really was resonated with me, I guess I'll say, um, and was really compelling to me. 
um, because I, yeah, I definitely think of, of writing as a, a craft. And I try, I try to think a lot about the relationship between the content of the writing and the structure or the form. Um, and I have a hard time kind of like separating those two. So the idea that I could um, kind of have this cohort of other writers that I could bounce ideas off of, that I could work with. Um, and then the other thing that's sort of built into the Atelier series is that each cohort, the year that you are selected, um, you participate in a workshop, um, like a manuscript workshop uh, at the American Anthropological Association annual meeting um, with the other uh, authors in your cohort. And so I think, yeah, like this, this development of a cohort is what really makes the series special. Um, I'm super glad that I got to be a part of it. Um, I think it really played a role in the, the growth and development of the book. Um, and it continues to be, um, you know, it continues to sort of fuel my own intellectual growth and growth as a writer. I actually just this morning <laughs> before I came on this podcast, uh, did like a two hour uh, workshop just with some shorter pieces of writing uh, with Kevin, the editor, and two other um, atelier authors that are in different cohorts from mine, actually. Um, so it was really nice to just sort of read what other people are working on, um, offer some constructive feedback, um, share my work with others, and kind of be able to do that on an ongoing basis. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the, the opportunity to write in community is um it's really, it's really important. Um, and so, so productive and, and generative for, for writing. And the book is very, very well written. So thank um, you. Yeah. So it was, it was really a wonderful read. Um, so before we let you go, um, usually the the final question is asking you about, um, the projects that you're embarking on next or, or current, uh, current projects that you're involved in, um, after producing this, this book, Contingent Kinship. Mm Mm-hmm. Uh, so this is a bit of a loaded question. Um, so I was I was in the middle of a year of field work <laughs> here in Rochester, New York, uh, when COVID hit. Um, so I've been I was on leave, um, and I'd been on leave. Let's see, I went on leave in July of 2019 and ended my leave in July of this year. Um, and so I this new project that I'm working on here in Rochester is called Fertile Ground. Um, and it examines the relationship between race and placemaking um, here in Rochester, which is a highly segregated mid-sized city uh, in Western New York. Um, it's the eighth most segregated city in the United States. Um, and here we're, we're still reeling from the police murder of Daniel Prude, um, who's an unarmed black man um, in the midst of a mental health crisis. Uh, and this, this police murder happened in March, um, but just recently came to light, I think at the end of August, beginning of September. Um, and so the public didn't know about it for, for months after it happened. Um, and so I, I've been, since it's, since I haven't been able to sort of do, continue my in-person field work, um, since March, I've been writing up some things from this new project, um, just about sort of communities of color and placemaking, the driving research question is how do um, individuals from marginalized groups create spaces, physical spaces of community and intimacy within the context of hypersegregation. So in this fieldwork, I work with a number of placemaking interventions around the city um, that include a children's garden, a community design center, 
um, a garden and housing cooperative for black women um, and a community that has this like cool communal learning garden. Um, and so I'm experimenting with some multimodal fieldwork, incorporating photoethnography and zine making. Um, and if anyone wants to know more about the project, it, it lives on the internet um, at fertilegroundrockroc.org. Um, and so there, yeah, I'm really, I'm excited about the partnerships that are sort of growing out of this. I'm excited by the prospect of doing um, a local project and sort of getting to weave my work you know, my professional work in the university into my field work and vice versa, um, and kind of think about how best to share resources between the university and the community um, and really be able to kind of like dig into a project that has potential to be, you know, long-term sustainable kind of partnership. Mm -hmm. And it was, I'm glad you shared that, that website because I looked at it and it has, um, it's, it's so rich um, with the, the uh, first uh, sharing the first information about your project, the fertile ground ROC.org. Um, so I hope people go and, and take a look at it as well. Um, yeah, thank you. And I want, want to thank you for uh, writing this book and for um, sharing with it, with sharing it with us on the podcast today. So thank you so much for being here. Of course. You're totally welcome. This was lovely. Guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere and each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.